Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Richard Ford i samtal med Hans-Ola Bränner, NRK. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägerstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Well, welcome Richard. Welcome Hans. Thanks. You <laughs> came, uh, came across the mountains. Yeah, I did. As Ingmar said, this is the sequel then of some sort to, to the previous conversation. The sequels could be a hard thing, but, but we'll do our best. It's always everybody has second act problems, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're here to talk about the book Between Them, which has been published since we were here the last time. Yes. Um, it's about uh, your parents. How will you describe the experience <coughs> of remembering one's parents by writing about them? Well, it, um, the, the reason I wrote about my father, and slightly similarly to the reasons that I wrote about my mother 30 years prior, was that I missed them. I, I, I looked around and I was 71 years old and I missed my father. And he'd been dead at that point <clears throat> for a long time, 1960. And when I wrote about my mother in the middle of the 80s, she had not long been uh, deceased and I missed her intensely. So <clears throat> the, the, the answer to your question is that, that when I wrote about them, I drew them to me. I, I, made, them, I made them be in my mind again in, a, in, a, in an animate way. So um, it, in, in that way, and, and I don't think that was the reason I ultimately wrote about them because you, I, I, I could have summoned them to me in other ways just by talking about them, just by making notes in my notebook about them. You write a book for other people, but as a, as a sort of a subordinate consequence of writing about them, I drew them to me again and, and made them present, which was great. I loved it. You loved it. I did, yeah. I loved them very much, and they loved me very much. And so, yeah. So now they're back in a way? <coughs> no, now they've gone away again. <coughs> you know, they're here now. Mm. And then if I ever want to find them, I can, I can find them. But I go on thinking about them. You know, there's a line in this, in this book <coughs> in which I say, and I think anybody in this room will understand it, that there's probably, a, well, I know, a day does not go by when I don't think a lot about my father. And the day does not go by when I don't think a lot about my mother. It's not that I'm obsessed by them. I'm not obsessed by them. They were just my parents. And, they, and I knew them for a long time. So it seems perfectly ordinary and normal for people to, you know, we all have these things that are going on in our minds all the time. They don't obsess us. They just are part of our familiars. And so I, my, my parents are my, are my familiars. I was an only child. Mm -hmm. I got all. Yeah, what does that mean, kids? being an only child? It means you get it all. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> you get, you get. If there is any bad, you get that. But there wasn't much bad, and so I got all of their attention and all of their interest, um, all that they had for me. Um, it should be said about my parents because they were, they were. Um, married for 15 years before they had me, and then they had no other children, that who was first 
in, in their lives was each other. Um, I was always third, and I thought that was just great because I should be third. It's, 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 a, it's a mistake, in a way, for parents to elevate their children to the, to, to the primacy. I, mean, I think it's a mistake to the primacy in the relationship. Hmm. So they met sometime before 1928. You were born in February 1944, if it's fair to say. <coughs> and I just... It's sad to say. Yeah. Uh, well, you know. <coughs> <No>. <laughs> it makes me old. <laughs> <coughs> but that means they had a life, as, as you mentioned b- before you came. Yeah. Is, is that kind of a mystery, you'd say? Well, it's... <coughs> uh, is it a mystery? <coughs> um, I don't think it's a mystery. It was just something that I didn't know about. Um, and that's different from a mystery, because um, I would ask them questions occasionally, and they would always deflect my questions. Why was that? Well, that's a, that is a mystery. Uh, <coughs> I think because um, of a couple of reasons. Well, maybe it's more than a couple. It wasn't their nature to fill in the past. It just wasn't their nature. Second, they lived through the Depression when they didn't have a lot of money. And I, th- I think that maybe something that they did when they were living together, basically in a car, going to my father's work, may- maybe they lived a sort of fast and loose life that they didn't want to visit on me. And then also, in, the, in, in both of their cases, <coughs> they didn't have bad upbringings, but they had, they had, some, they had some, some unhappinesses in their upbringing. And I think they just didn't like to visit those things. My, father, my father's father was a suicide, which was a terrible scandal for their family. And then my, my mother's stepfather was a bit of a gigolo, and I a little bit wonder if, in fact, he didn't... Um, make some moves on my mother because they weren't very far apart in age. There was, there was some evidence as life went on that maybe they had, had some fractious relations. And so, um, uh, so I don't think they wanted to talk about that either. Uh, and so, so when I was asking, you know, what happened to Aunt Bertha because her husband left, him, left her and went to Chicago in 1933, my mother would say, oh, you don't want to know about that. <laughs> <coughs> don't ask me that, she would say. For Christ's sake, why do you want to know that? You know, the usual stuff that parents say to their children when they don't want to be bothered but to answer the question. Hmm. So they didn't turn their experiences into good or bad stories? No, they didn't. I, uh, they, di- I, they didn't tell me many stories. And I think, <clears throat> I've, I've speculated in earlier in my life that because my parents didn't tell me very many things that I was forced to make up as much as I could and that that probably is one of the things that made acts of imagination be as important to me as they would subsequently become as a novelist. I, I began to think that things that I could make up, and this book is not full of those things, hmm. but novels that I have written are novels that champion the imagination, that they champion one's ability to, to make up what you don't know. Hmm. So that theory kind of makes sense. 
the theory that, <coughs> that 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 there's a connection between them, them not telling very much and you becoming a writer. You you favor that explanation. Well, I f I favor it, and for lack of any other explanation, uh, I mean, why someone becomes a novelist or a, a fiction writer is a is is a, is a congeries of 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 reasons. You know, um, everything else that I had done up until that time failed. Um, and those things were, for example, you, you pl actually <coughs> planned to become a hotel manager. That I did, because my, my grandfather was a hotel manager, and I thought that was a great life. But I wasn't. I went to college, and and, and you had to study things that I didn't want to study, and so I quit. And then I was in the Marine Corps, and that didn't work out very well. Then I went to law school, and that didn't work out very well. A lot of things by the time I was 23 just hadn't worked out very well. I taught school for a year in Flint, Michigan. That didn't work out very well. I <clears throat> had a, was offered a job by the CIA, and, and, and my wife, who is now my wife, she was my girlfriend then, um, she said, oh, no, 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 no. She said, I'm not going to have a, 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 a husband who works for the CIA. Um, so none of those things worked out very well. And when I looked around <coughs> and, I, and I saw, have you ever done anything in your life that you were any good at at all that you haven't failed at yet? Writing books, was writing novels, writing stories was the only thing I could think of. And my wife said to me, we were just about to get married. She said to me, you know, this is one of these kind of wonderful moments when a young girl says to her intended, what are you going to do with yourself? When we get married, <laughs> a perfectly reasonable question. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, I said, I think I'm going to try to be a writer. And I could as easily have said I'm going to be a small engine repair man or I'm going to work for a bank. And when I said I'm going to try to be a writer, Christina said, oh, that's great, she said. That's, you do that, she said. I'll get a job and you stay home and write stories. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's the best offer I've ever had. <laughs> <clears throat> that's exactly what we've done for the next 50 years. That's she, incredible. Well, it, 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 it is, actually. I think it's hard to believe myself. Yeah. I'm going home to my wife now. I'm telling <laughs> her a couple of things about Richard Ford's <coughs> wife. Well, um, you know, but, uh, but sometimes, you know, my, I teach at Columbia University, and sometimes my students will say, tell me the one secret, the, big, the one secret that you have to solve to... Uh, and no, to be a writer, I said, well, you, you have to marry Christina Ford. <laughs> but, but truthfully, for young writers, women or men, when they ask me the question of how am I going to support myself, you know, there's no money in this, I say, you know, shit, marry somebody who thinks it's a good idea and let that person support you. Mm. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. You didn't join the CIA, but <coughs> you said somewhere that you tell people on airplanes and stuff that oh, you're yeah. part of the FBI. Oh, yeah, I lie to people all the time uh, <laughs> and, and on airplanes uh, <laughs> to just to get them to tell me interesting stories. Mm. You know, I just... T I, I remember one time I was driving down from north-central Montana uh, off of an Indian reservation, and um, there was a guy hitchhiking who was clearly a Native American, and... And so I stopped and picked him up, and, and, and he got in the car, and I immediately realized this was a dangerous man. I don't know why I thought I should pick him up, but I did. And so I'm driving along thinking to myself, how, how am I going to get this guy out of the car before he kills me? And um, he said to me, he said, um, 
where are you going? You're going to Great Falls, Montana. Where are you going? I said, I'm, I'm just going back to work. He said, where do you work? I said, I work for the FBI. And then suddenly I could see him, <laughs> I could see him grip the sides of his chairs. And in the first opportunity, he, he asked to get out of the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but having published a couple of books yeah. uh, and being a lecturer at Princeton, yes. you had a chance to impress your mother. I did. I, <clears throat> I impressed my mother because she clearly was befuddled by the fact that I was a novelist. Even though I'd published two novels and owned a house and had a wife and owned cars and had a mortgage, nothing that I was doing had any particular persuasiveness to my mother. But when I got a job at Princeton, my mother said to me, and at this time I think I was about 35 years old, she said, oh Christ, she said, you're finally getting started. <laughs> and I said, I've, I've been started. She said, yes. She said, I know, I know, I know. She said, but I mean really started, by which she meant a job. Yeah. I didn't want a job. I wanted to take Christina up on her bargain. Yeah. There are no diaries and no letters uh, that you could, could use in order to, to write this book. Um, what you have is your own memories for the most part. Uh, you don't do the kind of research that people do in TV programs now, going back, finding the <coughs> roots, searching through archives and stuff. Um, That's it, right. Yeah, it's you and your memories. Could you, could you tell me a little about that point of view, so to speak? Well, <coughs> um, I keep a notebook. I always have a notebook. And um, <clears throat> any, any random thing, whether I think it's interesting or uh, apposite or pertinent or not, I write it down. And over the course of the 30 years that I was thinking about writing about my father, I, I kept this notebook and many iterations of this notebook. And um, I ended up with about <clears throat> 500 pieces of paper and, 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 and I just went through them the way you would study for an exam. I just went through them and, and then I typed them up and I annotated them. And what I found was that I had more memories than I thought and, and that a lot of memories that I had that didn't seem very important to me were actually worth noting. And then I had a lot of responses, a lot of things that I could say about the things that I had recorded. And then, um, and then there was a whole lot of other material which, which was superfluous perhaps, but which gave, gave a kind of historical context to things. Mm. Uh, so, so what kind of memory qualifies then, so to speak, to, to, to be part of a book like this? <coughs> well, um, I remember that in 1948, uh, I have a really good memory. That should be said. I have a really, well, up to today, up to today. Um, I, I remember 1948 being asleep, and all of a sudden there was a big um, tumult in the house. And I got up and came to the door, and, and two, two men in <clears throat> white, out, white clothing were going into my parents' bedroom and getting my father off the bed where he was having a heart attack and putting him on a stretcher or a gurney and wheeling him out of the house and into an ambulance that then went away. That qualifies. 
That qualifies to me. So what, what often qualifies, though it's not exclusively these kinds of things, are, 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 are visually memorable things, dramatic things. Uh, <clears throat> I remember once <clears throat> my father and I went out to cut a Christmas tree. Mm. And um, he wanted to cut a, one that was that big, and I wanted to cut one that was half again as big. And because he wanted to make me happy, he cut the bigger one and we took it home and it was too tall for the living room. And so that made him very frustrated and made me very frustrated. So we took it out of the living room and into the carport, the garage, and he was going to cut it down to make it fit, but he cut the top off of it. <clears throat> he didn't cut the bottom off of it. My father was a rather maladroit man. And he didn't, it, it, it just, he did it in a fury. He's so angry for having cut the wrong tree. And he didn't want to hold it against me that he just, in a fury, cut the top off. And when he cut the top off, that made me fall into a fury. And I took the Christmas tree and I picked it up and I threw it at him just like that. <clears throat> Whereupon he laid hands on me. And that qualifies. <clears throat> that qualifies. So, you know. You know, how, you know how your memory works. The, your memory just, particularly if you give yourself over to it, normally your memory, you don't give yourself over to it, and these things just get filed away, and serially they rotate back through. But every time things rotate, rotated back through my memory, I wrote it down. Because I thought, oh, maybe I'll forget it, or it won't rotate back through again. So... Um, that's, that's how. In other words, it's an entirely, you would say in, in, in American English, it's a kind of a pokey way of going about writing a memoir. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was not technical. It wasn't highly refined. It was just what I am as a writer, very thorough mm. and patient. Mm. But the three of you, I mean, you have, you have temper. Hmm. We all had a temper. And my mother was part Osage Indian, and my father was Irish. You know, alcohol was not their friend. <coughs> But still, it's a story of a happy childhood in a way. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, a happy childhood doesn't mean that that every day you're out in the garden picking roses. <laughs> a happy childhood means that if my mother and father had an argument, <coughs> at the end of the argument, they said that they loved each other and that they loved me. So, I mean, my, my understanding of what a happy life is is not a life without turbulence. It's not a life without discord or a life without friction. I think those are just normal kinds of goings on with people. I mean, it, of course, in some lives it can be terrible. Mm. It can be nothing but discord and tumult. But in my life it wasn't that way. Mm. Yeah. That's why, the, that's why I can tell a, a passage in this book about my mother and father having an argument <clears throat> in the French Quarter of New Orleans and ha my father was holding my mother up against a, a wall and, she, and they were arguing and, and, and I can tell that story because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't incongruent with their loving each other. You know, my, one of my definitions of, of good drama is that drama is... Drama is good when the villain says something that makes sense. And so for me, my parents' lives were typified by affection and love, except once in a while they got angry. So mm. that's okay. Mm. And if I can say it, 
it's okay. So fear or insecurity wasn't kind of a state of mind that bothered no. you? No, 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 no. Uh, uh, except the normal growing up fears and insecurities, you know, you don't fit in at school. I was a very bad student. I, I didn't do well in school at all. I failed the first grade and I, I almost failed the second grade and then I failed the ninth grade. I just, you know, I just was a nitwit. Um, but no, th but that, 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 that made me feel very bad, but it was nobody's fault but my own. Mm. Yeah. This memoir then cons consists of two separate memoirs. Yes. Why did you choose to do that? Well, I, <coughs> I, uh, I, I, choose, I, I chose to do it serially, which is to say I wrote about my mother shortly after she had died. She died in 1981, and I wrote about her in about 1984. And her, her, her life was very fresh in my memory. And then <coughs> I have to, when after I wrote about her, I thought, well, just in terms of s simple parental symmetry, I should probably write about my father as well. And I thought, yeah, how are you going to do that? Because he'd been dead at that point 26 years. And although he did die in my arms, it should be said, and that was vivid. And also, he, when he was alive, he was a traveling salesman, and he was off and gone. And I thought, how are you going to write about somebody who really wasn't there very much, even though he was your patient, loving father? I thought, well, the only way I can do that is just to take as much time as I need to take, which turned out to be 30 years. Glad I had the 30 years. So <clears throat> that's why. So it was like a lot of writerly choices. <clears throat> they, they, they come along with a logic that you can't perceive. Mm. And then you apply a logic to it after it's done. Mm. Like a lot of the things that we do. It makes sense in retrospect. Mm. But I, on the other hand, though, Hans, you know, <clears throat> I'm a writer and that's what I do. So the only way for me practically to think about my father was to think about what I would write, where I had to write about him, because that's my, that's my ingrained habit. Um, so, so, so his absence was kind of a, an interesting thing for you then, as a writer, <coughs> in a way. His, his absence became, um, if you'll excuse my saying so, his absence became a kind of presence. Mm. But I didn't come along to that, um, uh, that understanding until, I would say, three years before I wrote about him. For the, for the most part, I'm very good at in, 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 in keeping notes and just putting them over here and not thinking about them. Mm. Every once in a while, I'll think about all these notes. But then when I, when I draw a blank, then I don't want to think about them anymore because then I think, well, I'll get discouraged or, it w or I'll be thinking I can't do this. Mm. So I'll put it away <clears throat> and I'll think... Because I really do believe that with most things that I do, when I have a problem, when I come upon a writing problem, if I just don't think about it for a while, not ignore it, but just don't think about it for a while, the passage of time will make things a little clearer to me. Mm. I don't know how that happens, but it does. Mm. So what qualifies for, for a note then? Is it like... <coughs> what qualifies for a note? Well, I mean... Uh, <coughs> I mean, literally, what did I write? What would what would be a note? Mm. I have to make this interesting because most of these notes aren't very interesting. <laughs> <coughs> and, um, well, <laughs> I, I, I remember my my mother 
had a hysterectomy in what must have been about 1954. And I remember she was in the, ho she was in the hospital for several days. I, at this time, was 10. I didn't know what a hysterectomy was. But I know that my grandparents, my step-grandfather and my grandmother, came down to sort of take look after me while my father was away. He was working. She was in the hospital. And I remember my mother <clears throat> came home from the hospital. She got out of the car, and my grandfather, the gigolo, said to my mother, well, Edna, he said, were the nuns good barbers? <laughs> and my mother started crying. And I didn't know why she was crying. I didn't know what he meant by that. But I remembered it. I remembered it. And I wrote it down at some point. Hmm. And <clears throat> now, of course, I know it was just some lewd remark that he made to her that he should never have made. But that's the kind of lewd guy he was. Hmm. So that qualified in my memory. Mm. Mostly they're not as racy as that, thank goodness. Mm. It would be a different kind of life. Mm. <coughs> Somewhere in the memoir about your mother, you, you, you call it uh, an act of love, I think, uh, writing about her. What about the burden on you, possibly, then, to, to do it in a way that... Um, <coughs> Excuse me. That kind of do them right, uh, has that been a burden or, or did it come more naturally to you? There's nothing about writing that's a burden. Um, writing is easy, you know. Expand a little on that, please. <coughs> well, nobody makes you do it. That's what I mean, y you know. Uh, you, you choose to do it. And I think that if you choose to do something, you shouldn't complain about it. And so, for me, I chose to do this. And so whatever exactions it makes upon me, I can't say are hard. There are days that are better than other days. Um, there are days when I fail and days when I don't. But not altogether, none of it was hard. But more specific to your question, the, what was it a burden? No, it was a huge opportunity. It was a, it was a you know, there's a, <coughs> there's a, there's a line of Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a great American jurist in the 19th century, a Supreme Court justice, and he said, the spirit of liberty resides in our ability to understand others. And what I felt when I was trying to understand my mother and father was a great spirit of liberty, a great sense of being freed. Hmm. And, um, <clears throat> and what I mean by understanding them is, is not that, that I was trying to penetrate some mystery. I, I, I wasn't trying to see what was behind the surfaces of things and therefore more truthful. I, I was merely trying to take the bits and pieces that I could and make a kind of coherent narrative out of them that seemed to me when I read it faithful to their life. That's what understanding means to me. I sometimes ask my students, what do you think, what do you say, I, I'm trying to understand this? What do you mean mm. when you say, I'm trying to understand this? So then we talk about that, what understanding actually is. And the short version is? Well, <coughs> um, Ruskin says, composition is the arrangement of unequal things. So 
understanding is the arrangement of unequal things into a form that makes them coherent and seem to fit together. So that, to me, is what understanding is. Hmm. And, it's ne and it's necessarily provisional. Um, that is to say, it is a truth. It is not the only truth. No. So if, 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 you know, if my grandmother had written, these, written a memoir about my parents, she would have written something different. Mm. Um, but now it's your <coughs> version yes. that is there because there are no others to, to talk about That's your right. parents. And, I'm the ch and I was their only child, mm. so I have a sort of privileged position. Mm. Yeah. You warn us also, if I got it right, that we shouldn't um, think that what we don't know about our parents, for example, is the truth about them. Could yeah. you explain that a little? <coughs> well, I wanted to make clear that my understanding, <coughs> the number of details that I could have accumulated through my young life and then later on in my older life, was, was uh, incomplete. And, and that because my understanding was incomplete, it didn't mean that their lives were in any way incomplete. Or it didn't mean that I loved them less because I knew less about them. I mean, we, we, we can sometimes in our conventional lives, among others, you, you, we can hear ourselves doing this. Um, we, we, we can think that what we don't know is somehow a feature of the life of the person that we don't know about. But it's not. But it is not in indeed. I mean, <coughs> everybody's life, by and large, is as dense as everybody else's life under normal circumstances. So their lives, w when I wasn't around, were replete. Their lives, when I wasn't around, was you know, complicated. And maybe I didn't know it, but my not knowing it didn't make them less complicated. Mm. It's the way, it's the way, you know, li literature, literature tries to get in, into the little crevices of our conventional ways of understanding things and to, and to make those crevices wider and so we can, then literature puts into that crevice something that is useful. And that's, that's one of the things that I wanted to put into that crevice, that sense of th that my parents had huge lives and they weren't important lives out in the world, but my inability to fill them all in did not typify their lives. You mentioned uh, the feeling of being freed. You mentioned liberty. Uh, in, in, in what <coughs> way were you freed or in what way did you experience liberty? Well... I was carrying around all of this stuff, as we do. We carry around all of our memories, and most people carry around memories without having anything to do with them, and they eventually they just, they just evanesce. But for me, I was carrying around all these things, and suddenly I could do something with them. I could make literature out of them for the purposes of you know, illuminating someone else's lives, while I'm illuminating my parents' lives. So it was, it was hugely exhilarating to do it. There were days when I was sad. There were days when I was, um, when I was melancholy. But um, by and large, over the whole arc of this work, it was exhilarating. It was hugely exhilarating to be able to write about my parents. Mm. Because in part, <coughs> sorry, because they were people who you would never have noticed. They were, they were absolutely 
unconsequential people. They didn't make big things happen in the world. Um, for, and for that reason, they were not less important. And not just to me, but in an almost ontological way. I mean, one of the things that a memoir should do, just as any piece of literature should do, it should, it should point to something and say, Here's, here are people, here are events which you might not notice, but which are part of life and should be noticed, and you are better for noticing them. What was it like to, to go back and um, write about the situation uh, when your father dies? <coughs> well, it wasn't very hard because it took place a long time ago. Um, it, it just wasn't, you know, I, it, it probably would, would have been hard if I had tried to do it in 1960. But since I first tried to do it in 1984, and then I did it again and I, in, in a way that one doesn't completely replicate the other uh, in 19, um, 2015. Uh, it, it just wasn't hard. Time had, in a way, um, vacated some of the grief involved and had, and had left me free to try to make it as well written as I possibly could, unaccompanied by the encumbrances of grief. Mm. Yeah. Because it was all, you know, I'm <clears throat> that, you know Graham, Greene, Graham Greene said that every novelist has to have a needle of ice in its heart. I have that needle. I have a needle of ice in my heart. I know I do. Not that I'm proud of it or I'm not proud of it. But I will write about pretty much anything I want to write about. Does it make me a nice man? <coughs> Are you a ruthless man in any way? Hmm? Are you a, a ruthless man in any way? I hope in every way. <laughs> as a writer. Hmm. As a writer. I'm not, I won't be, I'm not ruthless with my wife. I'm not ruthless with my friends, normally. Uh, <coughs> but, you know, it, it's the job. Hmm. You mentioned your friends because you wrote an article about friendship <coughs> recently. I did. I did. It was very interesting. And <laughs> my friends come to me and they say, I, I have a problem with friendships. And I said, no. They, no. they said that about you? No, no, well, yeah, that's true from time to time. But, <laughs> but they in general have problems with some friend or another. And I said, and I say, read this article. Oh. And it comforts them, actually. Does it give them comfort? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, it was kind of my swifty and modest proposal, you know. Um, I, I wrote an essay, I don't know where it was, in the TLS, or the, uh, someplace in, in England. Mm. Um, I, I, I kept noticing a number of things about myself. I noticed that over the course of the, l the last 25 years of my life, I have just decommissioned some friends. I just simply said, all right, I'm not going to see you anymore, talk to you anymore, or have anything anymore to do with you. Decommission was the word. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm not even going to tell you why. I'm just, I, I, you're, you're, you're not being a good enough friend. You're not earning your place in my life. Goodbye. <coughs> and then I also noticed that I, that I um, get mad at my friends. And, and, and my friends will do, not, I mean my pe people who are still my friends. I get mad at them. I got mad at one of my friends the other day, very mad. And, um, and because 
oh, God, I couldn't tell you. It was some stupid reason. We were, what do you want me to tell you? <clears throat> we were driving out of the United States, crossing the border into Canada. And you know, the United States is an armed camp now. And, and, and the border crossings are particularly dangerous places to, to look the least bit suspicious when you're crossing the border. So we're driving out of, out of Montana in the U.S., going across the border, and, there's, and there's, uh, there's a kind of a confusion of signs about which way you're supposed to go. And my friend Bob Hausman, who I, whom I, I'm very dear to and dear with, he said, turn left, turn left, turn left. And all the signs were saying, go straight. And, uh, and, and so I was getting confused because I was terrified that somebody was going to start shooting at me. <clears throat> and um, so I turned left, and it was wrong. Hmm. And I said, for Christ's sake, I said, shut up. I said, would you just let me drive this car so that we don't get murdered here by the border patrol? And he got very quiet. He became, and, so I, and then I said to him in a minute or two later, I said, I'm sorry. I said, I, I just lost my temper because I'm, I'm scared. I'm going through these borders. You know, these guys have machine guns. and It's, the, it's America. It's Trump's America. Um, so I noticed that I get mad at my friends. Hmm. And so it occurred to me, well, you know, maybe one of the things that's true about me is that I'm not a very good friend. And that, and that I think I'm a good friend. We all think we're good friends, right? But maybe, in fact, it is of use to us to ask ourselves if we actually are. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I operate as a writer using a, 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 a philosophy of oppositional thinking. That if, that if something comes, seems naturally and conventionally true to me, I always ask myself, maybe it's not true, just as a way of thinking. So I thought, well, I think I'm a good friend. Of course I'm a good friend, but maybe I'm not. So then I wrote this essay for the TLS or someplace like that uh, about not being a good friend and, and, and sort of taking the point of view that, that being a friend is overrated. <laughs> and, th and that we think that friendship, you know, we say, you know, people always say, well, thank God I've got my friends. Hmm. And I thought to myself, well, who cares? <laughs> because that's a, a common <coughs> view, too, that uh, friendships are important to us. Yeah. Yeah. We even live longer with them. Yeah, we think. We think. <laughs> we, we, we think, you know. I, I, but, I mean, you know, it was, it was an essay. Hmm. So it was an essay. I was trying something in the sense of essay being a try at something. I was trying to put forward a Swiftian point of view, which was slightly heretical mm. and slightly naughty, and just to see what it would make me able to say. Mm. It didn't necessarily mean that I absolutely thought that I was the kind of wretch that I was arguing myself to be. Yeah. But it helps people in Scandinavia as we speak. <laughs> oh, it does. Oh, it does. <laughs> but what, why is that? I, 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 I think it had to do with expectations to what the friendship could be because people were disappointed about their friends. Uh, they felt that they offered too little and they kind of, <coughs> kind of downscaled their expectations to, to what the friendship should be. I don't know if it makes sense. But well, it, it, does, it does make sense because I think it's what happens to all of us. I mean, we go through life with other people. And um, and we have uh, nascent and silent expectations for how these other people should think about us and treat us. And um, I had a friend, for instance, who <coughs> who I had been friends with for about 35 years. He was a novelist. He is a novelist. He's not dead. 
And I, I, when I published Canada in the United States, Canada was, was, a, was a book of mine that, that, that sold a lot of copies and that got great reviews and was on the bestseller list in the New York Times. Uh, all these good things were happening to it. And somehow or other, my friend didn't get on the phone and say, you know, I'm glad this is happening to you. You know, this is good. I'm, congratulations. I, he said nothing. And I, after about six weeks of him saying nothing, I thought, hmm, maybe you aren't as happy for me as I want you to be. And so I thought, well, I think what I'll do is not talk to you for a year. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I found was that after a year went by, it was pretty easy not to talk to him. Mm. And that I found that I didn't really have to talk to him at all anymore at all, ever. Mm. And um, he called me a few times, and on, in, or he emailed me. He didn't call me. He emailed me. He said, are you mad at me? I said, no, I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you at all. I said, I'm just finished with you. <laughs> You know, and I drive by his house every once in a while, and I always think to myself, maybe I should stop in and see him, see how he is. He's a little older than I am, um, amazingly, and still alive. And, uh, but then I think, no, 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 I don't want to have that conversation either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, ways to end <coughs> friendships. Uh, some of your friends uh, have, um, even though memoirs sometimes are considered black sheep. Um, several of your friends have uh, uh, succeeded in writing their memoirs. Joyce Carol Oates among yeah, them. Yeah, a good one too. Yeah. That one about, her, about the death of her husband. Mm. Yeah, a very good one. And your friend Eudora Welty has also written memoirs. Yes, yeah. a wonderful called One Writer's Beginnings, which is just spectacular. Mm. Yeah. And there is this one amazing little scene in this book has to do with Eudora Welty. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of pointing to, to what your life becomes. Uh, could you tell a little about that situation? <coughs> well, Hans and I are presuming that you know something about Eudora Welty. She was, she's dead now. She was born in 1909 in Jackson, Mississippi, where I was born 35 years later. And uh, what was really one of the eminent American story writers and novelists of the 20th century. And, and rather hermetic woman, <coughs> but not but, but w gloriously humorous and mirthful and, and, and great. And I knew her quite well toward the end of her end of her life. But living in Jackson, which is a sort of parochial town of about eighty thousand when I was growing up there, everybody knew who she was. <coughs> but you know, only her friends knew her. My mother once took me to the grocery store, and we were waiting at a steam table. Which, which was a place sort of like a buffet in a hotel. And you would get a plate of food and they would package it up and you'd take it home, you'd walk home. It was in the middle of summer. I must have, must have been about 1952. And um, as I said, my memory is good for these things. And <coughs> as we were standing there waiting to get our food, my mother pointed at someone uh, politely and she said, Richard, she said, and I was eight, she said, do you see that woman standing over there? And I did. And she said to me, my mother did, she said, that's Eudora Welty. She said, she's a writer. And I, I could tell by the tone of my mother's voice that to be a writer, in my mother's estimation, was something, was, a, was consequential, was 
important in a way without her ever telling me <clears throat> she writes short stories or she lives over on Pinehurst Street or, or I've read a book of hers or she won the Pulitzer Prize, none of those things. She just said in that tone of her voice, she's a writer. And, and <coughs> that was important to me, that I, though I couldn't have said so at the time because in America, when a, a child or a young person decides she or he wants to be a writer, it's, it's a real diversion away from the more conventional ways of leading a life. You could be a doctor, or you could be a lawyer, or you could work in a bank, or you could work for the CIA. But to be a writer <coughs> was a little bit eccentric, and particularly in Mississippi, which is so conservative and hidebound. It's also slightly, of course, foolish to want to be a writer, because you're never going to succeed. But because Eudora lived in Jackson and was a, a person that you would see, uh, the license to be a writer was in the air. It, it was just something that a person could speak and say, I want to be a writer, and it wasn't quite as ridiculous then and there as it would have been otherwise. I, I, and I, one of the great good fortunes <coughs> of my life is that she lived long enough and I lived long enough to tell her that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. How did she respond then? Oh, well, she, she, I'm sure she said something funny uh, about it. She might have said, well, that's interesting, but what did you have for lunch? <laughs> <coughs> There's another scene with your mother in the book that leads to, to this sentence. And it interested me <coughs> very much. The more we see our parents fully, after all, see them as the world does, the better our chances <coughs> to see the world as it is. Would have been better if you, you, you read it yourself. But no, but no, I'd could say... You, could you... <coughs> well... What I, what I mean by that, and I can, and I can say it fairly succinctly, is that <coughs> it's, it's good for us because it's good for us to see our parents fully. And by fully, I mean to see that your parents were who they are long before you became who you were and, and, and were in a way... Um, different from and not even necessarily concerned with you before you existed. And I think it's useful to ask of the world uh, not that it consider you important, but that you find a way to make importance of yourself if you can, so that the world's <coughs> lack of interest in you is not a defect. It's not, it's, it's, it's not something, the world doesn't owe you anything. And I, and I grew up fairly clear about that because my parents loved me, but I was always, as we started out to say, I was always third. Mm. And so my understanding of the world <coughs> is that it is basically toward me an indifferent place and that there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. So I think the, the, the more we get comfortable by being in an indifferent world, the more we can free ourselves to do something for which the world might, in fact, uh, have an investment. Mm. And that is something totally different than resignation. It's Oh, yes. 
It certainly is totally different from resignation. I mean, <clears throat> you know, in, in, in anybody's decision to become a writer in Sweden, in Norway, in Lithuania, no matter where, there's some little part of it that doesn't make sense. There's some little part of it that, that remains a mystery. <clears throat> because when you use the word resignation, what it made me think when you said that was, but I was the most likely person in the world to be resigned because I grew up in podunk nowhere and I, and, I, and I had parents who didn't read books. I wasn't very good in school. I was dyslexic. I, I, there was just no reason in the world to think that I was going to spend 50 years being a writer and yet I did. So there's always going to be some little part of it that doesn't make sense. Um, but in the face of that unlikelihood, <laughs> resignation would have been the most natural thing in the world for me. Mm. It just, I, it just didn't happen. Mm. I don't know why. You know, I sometimes think it was because my father died when I was 16, and I had to be, uh, I was immediately freed of his, of his parental presence, and had to look after myself. And I didn't look after my mother very much, but I had to look after myself. And, that, and that all kinds of things that I would never have thought of became thinkable. Mm. As ridiculous as being a novelist. Mm. Yeah. And your mother gave you a pretty strong message then. You had, <coughs> to, you had to cope with your life. She j you know, I had been, when, when my father died, I was on parole with the juvenile authorities in Mississippi because I had been breaking into houses and stealing cars and stealing people's possessions and I'd been in court and very bad kid on the way to some worse place and then my father suddenly died and, and my mother said to me after my father died she said I can't get you out of jail again I, I'm sorry I have to get a job I don't have any money your father's dead you're just going to have to quit doing this. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> <laughs> Mama's boy. <laughs> I just did what my mother told me to do because I felt such a huge amount of sympathy and empathy for, for her facing what, at 50 years old, was the worst possible outcome of her life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, the book is sad, of course, <coughs> because we know that your father's going to die. We know that your mother's going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die. Yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, some before <laughs> others. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we <laughs> should end this. And yet uh, we're laughing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you... Uh, <coughs> If we could end this session um, at the point where your father is uh, really alive, but with the beginning oh. of the book, oh, if you could sure. read, I'll be, I'll um, be glad to. If we could end this session with a little reading from the book, yeah. You know, uh, it, Ralph Waldo Emerson says that no one contemplates the human condition without a sense of melancholy, a little sense of melancholy. It's all right. It's fine. Somewhere, this is, from my, this is from the first of these two pieces, which is called Gone, um, Memories of my, Remembering My Father. Somewhere deep in my childhood, my father is coming home off the road on a Friday night. He is a traveling salesman. It is 1951 or 52. 
He's carrying with him lumpy white butcher paper packages full of boiled shrimp or tamales or oysters by the pint he's brought up from Louisiana. The shrimp and tamales steam up hot and damp off the slick papers when he opens them out. Lights in our small duplex on Congress Street in Jackson, Mississippi are switched on bright. My father, Parker Ford, is a large man, soft, heavy-seeming, smiling widely as if he knew a funny joke. He is excited to be home. He sniffs with pleasure. His blue eyes sparkle. My mother is standing beside him, relieved he's back. She is buoyant, happy. He spreads the packages out onto the metal kitchen tabletop for us to see before we eat. It is as festive as life can possibly be. My father is home again. Our, my and my mother's week has anticipated this arrival. Edna, will you? Edna, did you? Son, son, son. I am in the middle of everything. Normal life between his Monday leavings and the Friday nights when he comes back. Normal life is the interstitial time, a time he doesn't need to know about and that my mother saves him from. If something bad has happened, if she and I have had a row, always possible. If I have had trouble in school, also possible. This news will be covered over, manicured for his peace of mind. I don't remember my mother ever saying, I'll have to tell your father about this, or wait till your father comes home, or your father will not like that. He confers, they confer, the administration of the week's events, including my supervision, onto her. If he doesn't have to hear it when he's home, ebullient and smiling with packages, it can be assumed nothing so bad has gone on, which is true and to that extent is fine with me. His large, malleable, fleshy face was given to smiling. His first face was always the smiling one, the long Irish lip, the transparent blue eyes, my eyes. My mother must have noticed this when she met him wherever she did, in Hot Springs or Little Rock sometime before 1928, noticed this and liked what she saw, a man who liked to be happy. She had never been exactly happy, only inexactly, with the nuns who taught her at St. Anne's in Fort Smith, where her mother had put her to keep her out of the way. For being happy, however, there was a price. His mother, Minnie, an unyielding immigrant from County Cavan, Ireland, a small town widow and Presbyterian, maintained views that my mother was a Catholic, why else go to their school? Catholic meant wide instead of diffident and narrow. Parker Carroll was her youngest of three, the baby. Her husband, my father's father, L.D. Ford Jr., was already a suicide, a dandified farmer with a gold-headed cane in a small Arkansas town. She'd been left with all his debts and his scandal. She meant to protect her precious last from the Catholics Definitely. My mother would never fully own him if his mother had a say, and she would. My father did not project a strength, even as a young man. Rather, he projected a likable, untried quality, a susceptibility to being overlooked, deceived, except by my mother. From my memory, I know he tended to stand back in groups and yet to lean forward when he spoke as though he was expecting soon to hear something he'd need to know. 
There was his goodly size, <clears throat> the warm, hesitant smile. A woman who liked him, my mother, could see this as shy, a fragility a wife could work with. He would likely not disguise things or himself. A man who wasn't so knowing that you couldn't take care of him. There was the terrible temper, not so much anger as eruptive and impulsive, born of frustrations with things he couldn't do or hadn't done well enough or didn't know, private dissatisfactions possibly of the sort that had made his young father take a seat on the porch step one moonlit night in 1916, having lost the farm to a bad investment and poisoned himself to death out of dismay. My father's temper wasn't of that kind. His sweetness, the large forward-leaning sunniness and uncertainty worked against that. Allowed an opening for a life my mother could see and enter with the sound of her name, Edna. Thank you for uh, that um <coughs> Thank you for that wonderful reading. Thank you. It's beautiful. And um, your parents, they're not buried at, uh, at the same place? No. <coughs> Another nasty bit of business. When my father died in Jackson, the, you know, in the American way, you get embalmed and put into a funeral home and all your friends come and visit the casket. And my mother was, of course, completely hysterical. And so the, he was taken to the funeral home, his body, and put on display for his friends, and meant to be put on display for <coughs> two or three days. It was old-fashioned. And what happened was that when my mother wasn't paying any attention, his father came down, rather his brother came down, and basically had his casket boxed up and put onto a railroad car and taken back to Arkansas without even asking my mother if she gave her permission and he was then buried in the little country graveyard where his mother and father were buried in a place that did not allow a space for my mother beside him. So uh, it, it broke her heart. And um, so now she's buried 65 miles away and he's buried where he's buried. And uh, <clears throat> I don't even go to their graves anymore. It just seems to me to be, um, just seems to me to be wrong, and it's a wrong I can't right, and so I just, I just let it go. I just let it go. But it was, it was, it was harsh. It was harsh. Um, yeah. But uh, life is full of harshnesses, and uh, and in the great spectrum of harshnesses, that's not a very big one. <coughs> and now they're in the book together. Yeah. Like two portraits yeah. on the wall next yeah. to each other. Yeah. Here they are. Here they are. Yeah. Thank you very much, Richard Ford. Thank you.